This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hi, everyone. My name is Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. It's a podcast where I read old books to help you sleep. The show is still continuing to grow. And we're on our 11th episode now, and more and more people are telling me that the show actually helps them sleep. This was obviously my hope when I started the show, but I didn't know if it would actually work. And turns out it is. We're getting more requests from listeners for poetry and books by Jane Austen. All stuff I really, really want to get to. It's just awesome to be hearing back from people who it's actually helped sleeping. So if the show works for you, just go on Apple Podcasts really quick and give a rating and leave a book that you would want to hear in one of the reviews. Giving these ratings helps the show gain momentum so it can be found by more restless people. So if you could do that really quick, that'd mean a lot. Thank you. And just because I hope you're going to be asleep by the end of this, the music that you're hearing right now is by my good friend James Lepkowski. It's made on this awesome little uh, metal ukulele guitar thing that he made. Tonight, we're going to read a book that I actually have read the beginning of plenty of times, but never really got to the end of it. It's The Odyssey of Homer. 
it's a really fascinating story to follow the Iliad. And even though it is really interesting, it's also really, really easy to fall asleep to. I've always absolutely loved Greek mythology. And this is just a giant web of some of all my favorite characters that I read about when I was a kid. I think if I was ever going to be a religious person, which I'm not, I would probably believe in Greek mythology. I think they're just the most human. These gods, they're really flawed. They all kind of seem like people we know. Like Dionysus, Aphrodite, Athena. Yeah, they're all really relatable characters. And in this one, Odysseus is lost at sea. And no one knows if he's alive. And there's men back home pillaging his estate. And his son is doing his best to keep it all together and believe that his father is still alive. It's a pretty fascinating story, but hopefully you're going to fall asleep to it tonight. So lay your head back, slowly melt into your bed, get your pillow just how you like it, close your eyes, and let me read to you. The Odyssey of Homer Book One Tell me, Muse, of the man of many ways who was driven far journeys after he had sacked Troy's sacred citadel. Many were they whose cities he saw, whose minds he learned of, many the pains he suffered in his spirit on the wide sea, struggling for his own life and the homecoming of his companions. Even so, he could not save his companions. Hard though he strove to, they were destroyed by their own wild recklessness. Fools who devoured the oxen of Helios, the sun god, and he took away the day of their homecoming. From some point here, goddess, daughter of Zeus, speak and begin her story. Then all the others, as many as fled sheer destruction, were at home now, having escaped the sea in the fighting. This one alone, longing for his wife and his homecoming, was detained by the queenly nymph Calypso, bright among goddesses in her hallowed caverns, desiring that he should be her husband. But when in the circling of the years that every year came, in which the gods had spun for him his time of homecoming to Ithaca, not even then was he free of his trials, nor among his own people. But all the gods pitied him, except Poseidon. He remained relentlessly angry with godlike Odysseus, until his return to his own country. But Poseidon was gone now to visit the far Ethiopians, Ethiopians most distant of men who lived divided, some at the setting of Hyperion, some at his rising, to receive the hecatomb of bulls and rams. There he sat at the feast and took his pleasure. Meanwhile, the other Olympian gods were gathered together in the halls of Zeus, First among them to speak was the father of gods and mortals, for he was thinking in his heart of stately Agethos, whom Orestes, Agamemnon's far-famed son, had murdered. Remembering him, he spoke now before the immortals. Oh, for shame how the mortals put the blame upon us gods, for they say evils come from us, but it is they, rather, who by their own recklessness win sorrow beyond what is given. As now lately beyond what was given, Agisthos married the wife of Atreus' son and murdered him on his homecoming, though he knew it was sheer destruction, for we ourselves had told him, sending Hermes, the mighty watcher, our gave Hontes, not to kill the man, nor court his lady for marriage, for vengeance would come on him from Orestes, son of Atreus, whenever he came of age and longed for his own country. So Hermes told him, but for all his kind intention, he could not persuade the mind of Agisthos. And now he has paid for everything. Then in turn, the goddess gray-haired Athene answered him, Son of Cronos, our father, O lordliest of the mighty, Agisthos indeed have been struck down in a death well merited. Let any other man who does thus perish as he did. But the heart in me is torn for the sake of wise Odysseus, 
unhappy man who's still far from his friends is suffering grief on the sea-washed island, the navel of all the waters, a wooded island, and there a goddess has made her dwelling place. She is the daughter of malignant Atlas, who has discovered all the depths of the sea and himself sustains the towering columns which bracket earth and sky and hold them together. This is his daughter. She detains the grieving, unhappy man, and ever with soft and flattering words she works to charm him to forget Ithaca. And yet Odysseus, straining to get sight of the very smoke uprising from his own country, longs to die. But you, Olympian, the heart in you is heedless of him. Did not Odysseus do you grace by the ships of the Argives, making sacrifice in wide Troy? Why, Zeus, are you now so harsh with him? Then in turn, Zeus, who gathers the clouds, made answer. My child, what sort of word escaped your teeth's barrier? How could I forget Odysseus the godlike? He who is beyond all other men in mind, and who beyond the others has given sacrifice to the gods who hold wide heaven. It is the earth and circular Poseidon, who ever relentless nurses a grudge because of the Cyclops, whose eye he blinded. For Polyphemus, like a god, whose power is greatest over all the Cyclops, Thusa, a nymph, was his mother, and she was the daughter of Phorcus, lord of the barren salt water. She in the hollows of the caves had lain with Poseidon. For his sake, Poseidon, shaker of the earth, although he does not kill Odysseus, yet drives him back from the land of his fathers. But come, let all of us who here work out his homecoming and see to it that he returns. Poseidon shall put away his anger, for all alone and against the will of the other immortal gods united, he can accomplish nothing. Then in turn, the goddess gray-haired Athene answered him, Son of Kronos, our father, O lordliest of the mighty, if in truth this is pleasing to the blessed immortals that Odysseus of the many designs shall return home, then let us dispatch Hermes, the guide, the slayer of Argos, to the island of Aegea, so that with all speed he may announce to the lovely-haired nymph our absolute purpose, the homecoming of enduring Odysseus, that he shall come back. But I shall make my way to Ithaca, so that I may stir up his son a little, and put some confidence in him, to summon into assembly the flowing-haired Achaeans, and make a statement to all the suitors, who now forever slaughter his crowding sheep and lumbering horn-curved cattle, and I will convey him into Sparta and Sandy Pylos to ask after his dear father's homecoming, if he can hear something, and so that among the people he may win a good reputation. Speaking so, she bound upon her feet the fair sandals, golden and immortal, that carried her over the water as over the dry, boundless earth abreast of the wind's blast. Then she caught up a powerful spear, edged with a sharp bronze, heavy, huge, thick, wherewith she beats down the battalions of fighting men against whom she of the mighty father is angered and descended in a flash of speed from the peaks of Olympus and lighted in the land of Ithaca at the doors of Odysseus at the threshold of the court and in her hand was the bronze spear. She was disguised as a friend, leader of the Taphians, Mentes. There she found the haughty suitors, there at the moment in the front doors were amusing their spirits with drafts games, sitting about on skins of cattle whom they had slaughtered themselves, and about them their heralds and hard-working henchmen. Some at the mixing bowls were combining wine and water, while others again with porous sponges were wiping the tables and setting them out, and others cutting meat in quantities. Now far the first to see Athene was godlike Telemachos, as he sat among the suitors, his heart deep grieving within him, imagining in his mind his great father, how he might come back, and all throughout the house might cause the suitors to scatter, and hold his rightful place, and be lord of his own possessions. With such thoughts, Sitting among the suitors, he saw Athene and went straight to the forecourt. The heart within him scandalized that a guest should still be standing at the doors. 
he stood beside her and took her by the right hand and relieved her of her bronze spear and spoke to her and addressed her in winged words. Welcome, stranger. You shall be entertained as a guest among us. Afterwards, when you have tasted dinner, you should tell us what your need is. So speaking, he led the way, and Pallas Athene allowed him. Now when the two of them were inside the lofty dwelling, he took the spear he carried and set it against a tall column in a rack for spears of polished wood, where indeed there were other spears of patient-hearted Odysseus standing in numbers, and he led her and seated her in a chair with a cloth to sit on, the chair splendid and elaborate. For her feet there was a footstool. For himself he drew a painted bench next door, apart from the others, the suitors, for fear the guest, made uneasy by the uproar, might lose his appetite there among overbearing people, and so he might also ask him about his absent father. A maidservant brought water for them and poured it into a splendid and golden pitcher, holding it above a silver basin for them to wash, and she pulled a polished table before them. A grave housekeeper brought in the bread and served it to them, adding many good things to it, generous with her provisions, while the carver lifted platters of all kinds of meat and set it in front of them, and placed beside them golden goblets and a herald going back and forth pouring wine for them. Then the haughty suitors came in, and all of them straightway took their places in order in chairs and along the benches, and their heralds poured water over their heads for them to wash with, and the serving maids brought them bread heaped in baskets, and the young men filled the mixing bowls with wine for their drinking. They put their hands to the good things that lay ready before them, but when they had put away their desire for eating and drinking, the suitors found their attention turned to other matters, the song and the dance, for these come at the end of feasting. A herald but the beautifully wrought lyre in the hands of Phemios, who sang for the suitors because they made him. He played his lyre and struck up a fine song. Meanwhile, Telemachus talked to Athene of the gray eyes, leaning his head close to hers so that none of the others might hear him. Dear stranger, would you be scandalized at what I say to you? This is all I can think of, the lyre and the singing. Easy for them, since without penalty they eat up the substance of a man whose white bones lie out in the rain and fester somewhere on the mainland or roll in the wash of the breakers. If they were ever to see him coming back to Ithaca, all of the prayer of them all would be to be lighter on their feet instead of to be richer men for gold and clothing. As it is, he died by an evil fate, and there is no comfort left for us, not even though someone among mortals tells us he will come back. His day of homecoming has perished. But come now, tell me this and give me an accurate answer. What man are you and whence? Where is your city, your parents? What kind of ship did you come here on? And how did the sailors bring you to Ithaca? What men do they claim that they are? For I do not think you could have traveled on foot to this country. And tell me this too, tell me truly, so that I may know it. Are you here for the first time? Are you a friend of my father's from abroad? Since many other men too used to come and visit our house in the days when he used to go about among people. Then in turn, the goddess gray-haired Athene answered him, See, I will accurately answer all that you ask of me. I announce myself as Mentes, son of Anchialos the wise, and my lordship is over the oar-loving Taphians. Now I have come in, as you see, with my ship and companions sailing over the wine-blue water to men of alien language, to Tamis, after bronze and my cargo's gleaming iron, and my ship stands nearby, at the country, away from the city, at the harbor, Raytheron, underneath wooded Naon. Your father and I claim to be guest friends of heredity from far back, as you would know if you went to the aged hero Laertes, who they say no longer comes to the city now, but away by himself on his own land, leads a hard life with an old woman to look after him, who serves him as victuals and drink at times when his weariness has befallen his body from making his toilsome way 
on the high ground of his vineyard. Now I have come. They told me he was here in this country, your father, I mean. But no, the gods are impeding his passage, for no death on land has befallen the great Odysseus, but somewhere, alive on the wide sea, he is held captive on a sea-washed island, and savage men have him in their keeping, rough men, who somehow keep him back, though he is unwilling. Now I will make you a prophecy, in the way the immortals put it into my mind, and as I think it will come out, though I am no prophet, nor do I know the ways of birds clearly. He will not long be absent from the beloved land of his fathers, even if the bonds that hold him are iron, but he will be thinking of a way to come back, since he is a man of many resources. But come now, tell me this and give me an accurate answer. Are you, big as you are, the very child of Odysseus? Indeed, you are strangely like about the head, the fine eyes, as I remember, we used to meet so often together before he went away to Troy, where others beside him and the greatest of the Argives went in their hollow vessels. Since that time I have not seen Odysseus, nor has he seen me. Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to her answer, See, I will accurately answer all that you ask of me. My mother says, indeed, I am his. I, for my part, do not know. Nobody really knows his own father. But how I wish I could have been rather son to some fortunate man whom old age overtook among his possessions. But of mortal men, that man has proved the most ill-fated whose son they say I am, since you question me on this matter. Then in turn the goddess grayer Athene answered him, The gods have not made yours a birth that will go nameless hereafter, since Penelope bore such a son as you are. But come now, tell me this and give me an accurate answer. What feast is this? What gathering? How does it concern you? A festival or a wedding? Surely no communal dinner. How insolently they seem to swagger about in their feasting all through the house. A serious man who came in among them could well be scandalized, seeing much disgraceful behavior. Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to her answer, My guest, since indeed you are asking me all these questions, there was a time this house was one that might be prosperous and above reproach when a certain man was here in this country. But now the gods, with evil intention, have willed it otherwise, and they have caused him to disappear in a way no other man has done. I should not have sorrowed so over his dying if he had gone down among his companions in the land of the Trojans or in the arms of his friends after he had wound up the fighting. So all the Achaeans would have heaped a grave mound over him, and he would have won a great fame for himself and his son hereafter. But now, ingloriously, the stormwinds have caught and carried him away, out of sight, out of knowledge, and he left pain and lamentation for me. Nor it is him alone that I grieve in my pain now, no longer, for the gods have inflicted other cares on me. For all the greatest men who have the power in the islands, in Dolichian, in wooded Zacanthos, and all who in the rocky Ithaca are holders of lordships. All these are after my mother for marriage, and wear my house out. And she does not refuse the hateful marriage, nor is she able to make an end of the matter. And these eating up my substance waste it away. And soon they will break me myself to pieces. Pallas Athene answered him in great indignation. Oh, for shame! How great your need is now of absent Odysseus, who would lay his hands on these shameless suitors. I wish he could come now to stand in the outer doorway of his house, wearing a helmet and carrying a shield and two spears, the way he was the first time that I ever saw him in our own house, drinking his wine and taking his pleasure, coming in from Ephir, from the Elos son of Murmuros. Odysseus, you see, had gone there also in a swift ship in search of a poison to kill men, so he might have it to smear on his bronze-headed arrows but Elos would not give many, since he feared the gods who endure forever. But my father did give it to him, so terribly did he love him. I wish that such Odysseus would come now among the suitors. They all would find death was quick, and marriage a painful matter. Yet all these things that are lying upon the gods' knees, whether he will come home to his vengeance, here in the household, 
or whether he will not. Rather, I will urge you to consider some means by which you can force the suitors out of your household. Come now, pay close attention to me and do as I tell you. Tomorrow, summon the Achaean warriors into assembly and publish your word to all. Let the gods be your witness. Tell the suitors to scatter and go back to their own buildings. And as for your mother, if the spirit urges her to be married, let her go back to the palace of her powerful father, and they shall appoint her the marriage and arrange for the wedding presents in great amount, as ought to go with your beloved daughter. But for yourself, I will counsel you shrewdly, and I will hope that you listen. Fit out a ship with twenty oars, the best you can come by, and go out to ask about your father, who is so long absent, on the chance some mortal men can tell you, who has listened to the rumors sent by Zeus. She more than others spreads news among people. First go to Pylos, and there question the great Nestor, and from there go to Sparta, and see fair-haired Menelaus, since he came home last of all the bronze-armored Achaeans. Thus, if you hear your father is alive and on his way home, then hard-pressed though you are, you should still hold out for another year. But if you hear he has died and lives no longer, then make your way home to the beloved land of your fathers and pile up a tomb in his honor and there make sacrifices in great amount, as is fitting, and give your mother to a husband. Then, after you have made an end to all these matters and done them, next you must consider well in your heart and spirit some means by which you can kill the suitors who are in your household, by treachery or open attack. You should not go on clinging to your childhood. You are no longer of an age to do that. Or have you not heard what glory was won by great Orestes among all mankind when he killed the murderer of his father, the treacherous Agisthos, who had slain his famous father? So you too, dear friend, since I can see you are big and splendid, be bold also so that in generations to come they will praise you. But now it is time for me to go back to my fast ship and my companions, who must be very restless waiting for me. Let all this be on your mind and do as I tell you. Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to her answer, My guest, your words to me are very kind and considerate, what any father would say to his son, and shall not forget them. But come now, stay with me, eager though you are for your journey, so that you may first bathe and take your ease, and well rested and happy in your heart, then go back to your ship with a present, something prized, altogether fine, which will be your keepsake for me, what loving guests and hosts bestow on each other. Then in turn the goddess gray-haired Athene answered him, Do not detain me longer, eager as I am for my journey, and that gift, whatever it is your dear heart bids to give me whatever it is your dear heart bids you to give me. Save it to give when I come next time, so I can take it home and choose a good one, and a fair exchange will befall you. So spoke the goddess gray-haired Athene, and there she departed like a bird soaring high in the air, but she left his spirit, determination, and courage, and he remembered his father even more than he had before, and he guessed the meaning, and his heart was full of wonder, for he thought it was a divinity. At once he went over, a godlike man to sit with the suitors. The famous singer was singing to them, and they in silence sat listening. He sang of the Achaeans' bitter homecoming from Troy, which Pallas Athene had inflicted upon them. The daughter of Icarios, circumspect Penelope, heard and heeded the magical song from her upper chamber, and descended the high staircase that was built in her palace. Not all alone, since two handmaidens went to attend her. When she, shining among women, came near the suitors, she stood by the pillar that supported the roof with its joinery, holding her shining veil in front of her face to shield it, and a devoted attendant was stationed at either side of her. All in tears, she spoke then to the divine singer. Femios, since you know many other actions of mortals and gods, which can charm men's hearts, and which the singers celebrate. Sit beside them and sing one of these, and let them in silence go on drinking their wine, and leave off singing this sad song, which always afflicts the dear heart deep inside me, since the unforgettable sorrow comes to me, beyond others, 
So dear a head do I long for whenever I am reminded of my husband, whose fame goes wide through Hellas and Minmos Argos. Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to her answer, Why, my mother, do you begrudge this excellent singer his pleasing himself as the thought drives him? It is not the singers who are to blame. It must be Zeus who is to blame, who gives out to men who eat bread, to each and all the way he wills it. There's nothing wrong in his singing the sad return of the Danans. People surely always give more applause to that song, which is the latest to circulate among the listeners. So let your heart and let your spirit be hardened to listen. Odysseus is not the only one who lost his homecoming day at Troy. There were many others who perished beside him. Go therefore back in the house and take up your own work, the loom and the distaff, and see to it that our handmaidens ply their work also. But the men must see to discussion, all men, but I most of all, for mine is the power in this household. Penelope went back inside the house in amazement, for she laid the serious words of her son deep away in her spirit, and she went back to the upper story with her attendant women and wept for Odysseus, her, believe, her beloved husband, until gray-haired Athene cast sweet slumber over her eyelids. But the suitors, all through the shadowy halls, were raising a tumult, and all prayed for the privilege of lying beside her, until the thoughtful Telemachus began speaking among them. You suitors of my mother, overbearing in your rapacity, now let us dine and take our pleasure, and let there be no shouting, since it is a splendid thing to listen to a singer who is such a singer as this man is, with a voice such as the gods have. Then tomorrow let us all go to a place of assembly and hold a session where I'll give you my forthright statement that you go out of my palace and do your feasting elsewhere, eating up your own possessions, taking turns household by household. But if you decide it was more profitable and better to go on eating up one man's livelihood without payment, then spoil my house. I will cry out to the gods everlasting in the hope that Zeus might somehow grant a reversal of fortunes. Then you may perish in this house with no payment given. So he spoke, and all of them bit their lips in amazement at Telemachus and the daring way he spoke to them. It was Antinous, the son of Eupethes, who answered, Telemachus, surely it must be the very gods who prompt you to take the imperious line and speak so daringly to us. I hope the son of Cronus never makes you our king in secret Ithaca, though to be sure, that is your right by inheritance. Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to him in answer, Antinous, in case you wonder at what I am saying, I would be willing to take that right if Zeus should give it. Do you think that is the worst thing that could happen to anybody? It is not bad to be a king. Speedily the king's house grows prosperous, and he himself is ranked beyond others. But in fact, there are many other Achaean princes, young and old, in secret Ithaca, any of whom who might hold this position, now that the great Odysseus has perished. But I will be the absolute lord over my own household and my servants, whom the great Odysseus won by force for me. Then in turn, the Armachos, son of Polybus, answered, Telemachos, these matters in which of the Achaeans will be king in secret Ithaca are questions that lie in the gods' knees. But I hope you keep your possessions and stay lord in your own household. May the man never come who against your will and by force shall drive you away from your holdings, while Ithaca is a place still lived in. But best of men, I wish to ask you about this stranger, where he came from, what country he announces as being his own, where lies his parent's stock, in the fields of his fathers. Has he brought some passage from your father who was on his way here? Or did he arrive pursuing some matter of his own business? How suddenly he started away and vanished and did not wait to be made known. He was no mean man by the look of him. Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to him in an answer, Your Machos, there is no hope of my father's homecoming. I believe no messages anymore even should there be one, nor pay attention to any prophecy. Those times my mother calls some diviner into the house and asks him questions. This stranger is a friend of my father's, 
He comes from Taphos and announces himself as Mentes, the son of Achialos, the wise, and he is the lord of the lovers of the ore, the Taphians. So spoke Telemachus, but in his heart he knew the immortal goddess. The others, turning to the dance and the delightful song, took their pleasure and awaited the coming of the evening, and the black evening came on as they were taking their pleasure. Then they went home to bed, each to his own house, but Telemachus went where, off the splendid courtyard, a lofty bedchamber had been built for him in a sheltered corner. There he went to go to bed, his heart full of problems, and devoted Ericlea went with him and carried the flaring torches. She was the daughter of Ops, the son of Pisenor, and Laertes had brought her long ago with his own possessions when she was still his first youth, when she was still in her first youth, and given twenty oxen for her, and he favored her in his house as much as he did his devoted wife, but never slept with her for fear of his wife's anger. She now carried the flaring torches for him. She loved him more than the other maidservants, and had nursed him while he was little. He opened the doors and closed compacted chamber, and sat down on the bed, and took off his soft tunic, and put it into the hands of the sagacious old woman. And she in turn folded the tunic, and took care of it for him, and hung it up on the peg beside the corded bedstead. Then she went out of the room, and pulled the door behind her with a silver hook, the strap drew home from the door bolt. There, all night long, wrapped in a soft sheepskin, he pondered in his heart the journey that Pallas Athene had counseled. Now when the young dawn showed again her the rosy fingers, the dear son of Odysseus stirred from where he was sleeping, and put on his clothes, and slung a sharp sword over his shoulder. Underneath his shining feet he bound the fair sandals and went on his way from the chamber like a god in presence. He gave the word now to his clear-voiced heralds to summon by proclamation to assembly the flowing hair to Cans, and the heralds made their cry, and the men were assembled swiftly. Now when they were all assembled in one place together, he went on his way to assembly, in his hands holding a bronze spear. Not all alone, but a pair of light-footed dogs went with him. Athene drifted in enchantment of grace upon him, and all the people had their eyes on him as he came forward. He sat in his father's seat, and the elders made way before him. The first now to speak to them was the hero, Agyptheos, who was bent over with age and had seen things beyond number. His own dear son, Antiphos the spearman, had gone off with godlike Odysseus to Ilion, land of the good horses and the hollow ships, and now the wild Cyclops had killed him deep in his cave, and this was the last man he had eaten. He had three other sons. One of them, Euronomos, went with the suitors. The other two kept their estates of their fathers. Even so, he could not forget the lost one. He grieved and mourned for him, and it was in tears for him now that he'd stood forth and addressed them. Hear me now, men of Ithaca, the word I give you. Never has there been an assembly of us or any session since great Odysseus went away in the hollow vessels. Now who has gathered us in this way? What need has befallen which of the younger men, or one of us who are older? Has he been hearing some message about the return of the army, which having heard it first he could not explain to us? Or has he some other public matter to set forth and argue? I think he is a good man and useful. So may Zeus grant him good accomplishment for whatever it is his mind desires. He spoke, and the dear son of Odysseus was glad for the omen, nor did he remain seated long. His heart was for speaking, and he stood in the middle of the assembly. The herald, Pisenor, a man of deep discretion, put into his hands the scepter. First, in answer to the old man, he spoke and addressed him. Old sir, the man is not far, but here. You yourself shall know him. It is I who assembled the people. To me this grief comes closest, now that I have heard some message about the return of the army, which having heard it first, I can now explain to you. Nor have I some other public matter to set forth and argue, but my own need, the evil that has befallen my household. There are two evils. I have lost a noble father, one who was king once over you here, and was kind to you like a father. And now... Here is a greater evil, 
one which presently will break up my whole house and destroy all my livelihood. For my mother, against her will, is beset by suitors, own sons to the men who are greatest hereabouts. These shrink from making the journey to the house of her father, Akarios, so that he may take bride gifts for his daughter and bestow her on one he wished, who come his favorite, rather, all their days. They come and loiter in our house and sacrifice our oxen and our sheep and our fat goats and make holiday feast of it and drink bright wine recklessly. Most of our substance is wasted. We have no man here such as Odysseus was to drive his curse from the household. We ourselves are not the men to do it. We must be weaklings in such a case, not men well seasoned in battle. I would defend myself if the power were in me. No longer are the things endurable that have been done, and beyond all decency my house has been destroyed. Even you must be scandalized and ashamed before the neighboring men about us. The people who live around our land fear also the gods' anger, lest they, astonished by evil actions, turn against you. I supplicate you, by Zeus the Olympian, and by Themis, who breaks up assemblies of men and calls them in session. Let be, my friends, and leave me alone with my bitter sorrow to waste away, unless my noble father Odysseus at some time in anger did evil to the strong grieved Achaeans, for which angry with me in revenge you do me evil in setting these on me. But for me it would be far better for you to eat away my treasures and eat my cattle. If you were to eat them, there might be recompense some day, for we could go through all the settlement with claims made public asking for our goods again, until it was all regiven. But now you are heaping me with troubles I cannot deal with. So he spoke in anger, and dashed to the ground the scepter in a storm burst of tears, and pity held all the people. Now all the rest were stricken with silence. None was so hardy as to answer, angry word against word, the speech of Telemachus. It was Antinous who spoke to him in answer, High-spoken and temperate, Telemachos, what accusations you have made to our shame, trying to turn opinion against us, and yet you have no cause to blame the Achaean suitors, but is with your dear mother, and she is greatly resourceful. And now it is the third year, and will be the fourth year presently, since she has been denying the desires of the Achaeans, for she holds out hope to all, and makes promises to each man, sending us messages but her mind is of their intentions. And here's another stratagem of her heart's devising. She set up a great loom in her palace and set to weaving a web of threads long and fine. Then she said to us, Young men, my suitors now that the great Odysseus has perished, wait, though you are eager to marry me, until I finish this web so that my weaving will not be useless and wasted. This is a shroud for the hero Laertes, for the destructive doom of death which lays men low shall take him, lest any Achaean woman in his neighborhood hold it against me that a man of many conquests lies with no sheet to wind him. So she spoke, and the proud heartness was persuaded. Thereafter, in the daytime, she would go weave at her great loom, but in the night she would have torches set by and undo it. So for three years, she was secret in her design, convincing the Achaeans, but when the fourth year came, with the seasons returning, one of her women, who knew the whole of the story, told us, and we found her in the act of undoing her glorious weaving. So against her will, and by force, she had to finish it. Now the suitors answer you thus, that you yourself may know it in your mind, and all the Achaeans may know it. Send your mother back and instruct her to be married to any man her father desires and who pleases her also. But if she continues to torment the sons of Achaeans, since she is so dowered with the wisdom bestowed by Athene, to be expert in beautiful work, to have good character and cleverness, such as we are not told of, even of the ancient queens, the fair tressed Achaean women of times before us, Tyro and Alcamene and Mycenae, wearer of garlands, for none of these knew thought so wise as those Penelope knew. Yet in this single matter she did not think rightly. So long, I say, will your livelihood and possessions be eaten away, 
as long as she keeps this purpose, one which the very gods, I think, put into her heart. She is winning a great name for herself, but for you, she is causing much loss in substance. We will not go back to our own estates, nor will we go elsewhere until she marries whichever Achaean man she fancies. Then thoughtful Telemachus said to him in answer, Antinous, I cannot thrust the mother who bore me, who raised me, out of the house against her will. My father, alive or dead, is elsewhere in the world. It will be hard to pay back Icarios if willingly I dismiss my mother. I will suffer some evil from her father, and the spirit will give me more yet, and my mother will call down her furies upon me as she goes out of the house, and I shall have the people's resentment. I will not be the one to say that word to her. But as for you, if your feeling is scandalized by my answer, go away from my palace and do your feasting elsewhere, eating up your own possessions, taking turns household by household. But if you decide it is more profitable and better to go on eating up one man's livelihood without payment, then spoil my house. I will cry out to the gods everlasting in the hope that Zeus might somehow grant reversal of fortunes. Then you may perish in this house with no payment given. So spoke Telemachus, and for his sake Zeus of the wide brows sent forth two eagles, soaring high from the peak of the mountain. These for a while sailed on stream of wind together, wing and wing close together, wings spread wide. But when they were over the middle of the vociferous assembly, they turned on each other and suddenly, in a thick shudder of wings, and swooped over the heads of all, with eyes glaring and deadly, and tore each other by the neck and cheek with their talons then sped away to the right across the houses and the city. Then all were astounded at the birds when their eyes saw them, and they pondered to their hearts over what might come of it. And Halitherses, master's son, an aged warrior, spoke to them. He was far beyond the men of his generation in understanding the meaning of birds and reading their portents. Now, in kind intention toward all, he spoke and addressed them. Hear me now, men of Ithaca, what I have to tell you. But what I say will be mostly a warning to the suitors, for a great disaster is wheeling down on them. Surely Odysseus will not be long away from his family, but now, already, is somewhere close by, working out the death and destruction of all these men, and it will be an evil for many others of us who inhabit sunny Ithaca. So well beforehand, let us think about how we can make them stop, or better let them stop themselves. It will soon be better for them if they do so. I who foretell this am not untried. I know what I am saying. Concerning him, I say that everything was accomplished in the way I said it would be the time that Argives took ship for Ilion, and with them went resourceful Odysseus. I said that after much suffering, with all his companions lost, in the twentieth year, not recognized by any, he would come home. And now all this is being accomplished. Then in turn, the Armachos, son of Polybus, answered, Old sir, better go home and prophesy to your children, for the fear that they may suffer some evil to come. In these things I can give a much better interpretation than you can. Many are the birds who under the sun's rays wander the sky. Not all of them mean anything. Odysseus is dead, far away, and how I wish that you had died with him also. Then you would not be announcing all these predictions, nor would you stir up Telemachos, who is now angry, looking for the gift for your own household which he might give you. But I will tell you straight out, and it will be a thing accomplished. If you, who know much and have known it so long, stir up a younger man, and by talking him round with words encourage his anger, then first of all, it will be worse for him. He will not, on account of all these things, be able to accomplish anything. And on you, old sir, we shall lay a penalty, and will grieve your mind as you pay it, and that for you will be a great sorrow. I myself, before you all, will advise Telemachus, let him urge his mother to go back to her father's, and they shall appoint the marriage and arrange for the wedding presents in great amount, as ought to go with a beloved daughter, for I think the sons of the Achaeans will not give over their harsh courtship. For in any case we fear no one, and surely 
not telemachos, for all he is so eloquent, nor do we care for any prophecy which you, old sir, may tell us, which will not happen, and will make you even more hated, and his possessions will wretchedly be eaten away. There will not be comparison ever while she makes the Achaeans put off marriage with her, while we, awaiting this, all our days quarrel for the sake of her excellence, nor ever go after others whom any of us might properly marry. Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to him in answer, Eurymachos, and all you others who are haughty suitors, I no longer entreat you in these matters, nor speak about them, since by now the gods know about this, and so do all the Achaeans. But come now, grant me a swift ship and twenty companions who can convey me on a course from one place to another, for I am going to Sparta and going to Sandy Pylos to ask about the homecoming of my father, who is long absent on the chance of some mortal men telling me or of hearing a rumor sent by Zeus. She more than others spreads news among people. Then if I hear my father is alive and on his way home, then hard-pressed though I be, I will still hold out for another year. And if I hear he has died and lives no longer, then I will make my way home to the beloved land of my father's and pile up a tomb in his honor and there make sacrifices in great amount as is fitting and give my mother to a husband. So he spoke and sat down again and among them rose up Mentor, who once has been a companion to stately Odysseus, and Odysseus, going on the ships, had turned over the household to the old man, to keep it well, and so all should obey him. He in kind intention now spoke forth and addressed him, Hear me now, men of Ithaca, what I have to tell you. No longer now let one who is a sceptered king be eager to be gentle and kind, be one whose thought is school of injustice, and let him always rather be harsh and act severely, seeing the way no one of the people he was lord over remembers God like Odysseus, and he was kind like a father. Now it is not so much the proud suitors I resent for doing their violent acts by their means of evil devising, for they lay their heads on the line when violently they eat up the house of Odysseus, who, they say to themselves, will not come back. But now I hold it against you other people, how you all sit there in silence, and never with an assault of words try to check the suitors, though they are so few, and you so many. Then Leocritos, son of Eunor, spoke forth against him. Mentor, reckless in words, wild in your wits, what a thing you have said urging them to stop us. It would be difficult, even with more men than these, to fight us over our feasting. For even if Odysseus of Ithaca himself were to come back, and find the haughty suitors feasting in his house, and be urgent in his mind to drive them out of his palace, his wife would have no joy of his coming, though she longs for it greatly, but rather he would meet an unworthy destiny if he fought against too many. You have spoken to no purpose. Come then, all these people disperse now, each to his own holdings, and Mentor and Halotherses will push forward this man's journey, since these from the first have been friends, as friends of his father. But I think he will not sit there a long time, waiting for messages here in Ithaca, and will never accomplish his voyage. So he spoke, and suddenly broke up the assembly, and the people scattered and went their ways, each to his own house, while the suitors went away into the house of godlike Odysseus. But Telemachos, walking along the sea beach away from the others, washed his hands in the gray salt water and prayed to Athene, Hear me, you who came yesterday, a god, into our house and urged me to go out by ship over the misty face of the sea to ask about the homecoming of my father who was so long absent. Now all this is delayed by the Achaeans and particularly the suitors in their evil overconfidence. Though he spoke in prayer and from nearby, Athene came to him, likening herself to mentor in voice and appearance. Now she spoke aloud to him, and addressed him in winged words. Telemachos, you are to be no thoughtless man, no coward, if truly the strong force of your father's is instilled in you, such a man he was for accomplishing word and action. Your journey then will be no vain thing, nor go unaccomplished, 
But if you are not the seed begotten of him and Penelope, I have no hope that you will accomplish all that you strive for. For few are the children who turn out to be equals of their fathers, and greater number are worse. Few are better than their father is. But since you are no thoughtless man, no coward, and the mind of Odysseus is not altogether given out in you, there is some hope that you can bring all these things to fulfillment. So now, let the purpose and the planning of these senseless suitors, since they are neither thoughtful men nor just men, and have not realized the death and black fatality that stands close by, so that on a day they all might perish, and that journey for which you are so urgent will not be long now. Such a companion am I to you, as of your father. I will fit you out a fast ship. I myself will go with you. But now you must go back to the house and join the suitors and get ready provisions for the journey. Pack all in containers, have wine and handled jars and barley meal, men's marrow, and thick leather bags. And I, going round the town, will assemble volunteer companions to go with you. There are ships in plenty here in secret Ithaca, both old and new ones, and I will look them over for you to find the best one. And soon we shall stow our gear and put out into the wide sea. So spoke Athene, daughter of Zeus, nor did Telemachus delay long after he had heard the voice of the goddess, but went on the way to his house, his heart troubled within him. He came upon the haughty suitors, there in his place, skinning goats and singeing fatted swine in the courtyard. Antinous, with a smile, came straight up to Telemachus, and took him by the hand, and spoke and named him, saying, High-spoken and temperate, Telemachus, now let no other evil be considered in your heart, neither action nor word, but eat and drink with me, as you did in past time. The Achaeans will see to it that all these things are accomplished, the ships, the chosen companions, so that you may quickly reach sacred Pylos, after news about your proud father. Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to him in answer, Antinous, there is no way for me to dine with you against my will, and take my ease when you are so insolent. It is not enough for you suitors that in time past you ruined my great and good possessions when I was still in my childhood. But now, when I am grown big, and by listening to others can learn the truth, and the anger is steaming up inside me, I will endeavor to visit evil destructions upon you, either by going to Pylos or remaining here in the district but I will go. That journey I speak of will not be made void, but as a passenger, for I control no ship, nor any companions. This, I think, was the way you wished to have it. He spoke, and lightly drew away his hand from Antinous' hand, and the suitors about the house prepared for dinner, and in their conversation they insulted him and mocked him, and thus would go the word of one of the arrogant young men. Surely now Telemachus is devising our murder, Either he will bring some supporters from Sandy Pylos, or even from Sparta, now he is so terribly eager. Or perhaps his purpose is to go to Ephir, that rich corn land, so that hence he can bring back poisonous medicines, and put them in our wine bowl, and destroy all of us. And thus would speak to another one of these arrogant young men. Who knows whether, when he goes in a hollow ship, he also might perish staying far from his people, as did Odysseus. Were this to happen, he would lighten all this work for us. Then we could divide up his possessions and give the house to the man the mother to keep and the man who marries her. So they spoke, but he went down into his father's high-roofed and wide storeroom, where gold and bronze were lying piled up, and abundant clothing in the bins, and fragrant olive oil, and in it jars of wine, sweet to drink, aged, were standing, keeping the unmixed divine drink inside them lined up in order close to the wall for the day when Odysseus might come home, even after laboring through many hardships. To close it there were double doors that fitted together with two halves, and there by night and day was a woman in charge who, with intelligent care, watched over all this, Eurycleia, the daughter of Ops and the son of Sinor. Now Telemachus called her to the room and spoke to her, Dear nurse, draw me some sweet wine in the handled jars, choicest of all you have in your keeping, next after what you were saving for the ill-fated man, the day when Zeus sprung Odysseus might come home, escaping death and its spirits. Fill me twelve in all, and fit them with covers, 
and pour me barley into bags stitched strongly of leather. Let me have twenty measures of choice milled barley. You be the only one who knows this. Let all be gathered together, for I will pick it up in the evening after my mother climbs to her upper chamber and is ready for sleeping. For I am going into Sparta and to Sandy Pylos to ask my father's dear homecoming if I might hear something. So he spoke, and the dear nurse Ericlia cried out, and bitterly lamenting she addressed him in winged words. Why, my beloved child, has this intention come into your mind? Why do you wish to wander over so much country, you, an only and loved son? Illustrious Odysseus has perished far from his country in some outlandish region, and these men will devise evils against you on your returning, so you shall die by guile, and they divide all that is yours. No, but stay here and guard your possessions. It is not right for you to wander and suffer hardships on the barren wide sea. Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to her in answer, Do not fear, nurse. This plan was not made without God's will. But swear to tell my beloved mother nothing about this until the eleventh day has come, or the twelfth hereafter, or until she misses me herself as hears I am absent, so that she may not ruin her lovely skin with weeping. So he spoke, and the old woman swore to the gods a great oath, and after she had sworn to it and completed the oath-taking, she drew the wine and handled jars at once thereafter and poured barley into the bag stitched strongly of leather. But Telemachus went back into the house and joined the suitors. Now the gray-haired goddess Athene thought about what to do next. In the likeliness of Telemachus, she went all through the city, and standing beside each man as she came to them, told them all to assemble beside the fast ship in the evening. Then she asked Norman, the glorious son of Phronios, for a fast ship, and he with good will promised it to her. And the sun set, and all the journeying ways were darkened. Now she drew the fast ship down to the sea, and in her stowed all the running gear that strong benched vessels carry. She sat at the edge of the harbor, and around her good companions thronged, and were assembled, and the goddess urged on each man. Now the gray-haired goddess, Athene, thought what to do next. She went on her way, into the house of godlike Odysseus, where she drifted a sweet slumber over the suitors, and struck them as they drank, and knocked the goblets out of their hands, and they went to sleep in the city, nor did anyone sit long, after sleep was fallen upon his eyelids. Afterward gray-haired Athene spoke to Telemachus, when she called him out in front of the well-established palace, likening herself to mentor in voice and appearance. Telemachus, already now, your strong grieve companions are sitting at the oars and waiting for you to set forth. Let us go, and not delay our voyaging any longer. So spoke Pallas Athene, and she led the way swiftly, and the man followed behind her, walking in the god's footsteps. But when they had come down to the sea, and where the ship was, they found the flowing-haired companions there by the seashore. Now the hollowed prince, Telemachus, spoke his word to them. Here, friends, let us carry their provisions. They are all ready and stacked in the hall. But my mother has been told nothing of this, nor the rest of the serving women. Only one knows the story. So he spoke and led the way, and the rest went with him. They all carried the provisions down, and stowed him in the strong benched vessel, in the way of the dear son Odysseus directed them. Telemachus went aboard the ship, but Athene went first and took her place in the stern of the ship, and close beside her Telemachus took his place. The men cast off the stern cables, and themselves also went aboard and sat to the oarlocks. The goddess gray-haired Athene sent them a favoring stern wind, strong Zephyros, who murmured over the wine-blue water, Telemachus gave the sign and urged his companions to lay hold of the tackle, and they listened to his urging, and raising the mast pole made of fur, they set it upright in the hollow of the hole of the box and made it fast with four stays, and with halyards strongly twisted of leather pulled up the white sails. The wind blew into the middle of the sail, and at the cut water a blue wave rose and sang strongly as the ship went forward. She ran swiftly, cutting across the swell her pathway. When they had made fast the running gear all along the black ship, then they set up the mixing bowls 
filling them to the brim full with wine, and poured to the gods immortal and everlasting. But beyond all other gods, they poured to Zeus's gray-haired daughter. All night long, and into the dawn, she ran on her journey. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.